Thursday, April 16th, 2020, and this is Rook. Welcome to Rock. Salam dostan aziz. Omidvaram hamichi rubera bashe har jaye dunya ke hastin. You know there's a Farsi word in the vernacular that has no meaning when written out in English, but it's not hard to pronounce. It translates as candid or straightforward in conversation. And so maybe it makes sense when thinking about a new platform that is aspiring to bring conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora, that we would start with the aim of being blunt about our issues, our identity, our global disposition. As people of Iranian descent might know, that word, to be candid, is rook. this why now chera rok budan well this has been a brutally unkind time for people of iranian descent around the world there's no particular way to sugarcoat it and there's no particular panacea and this is not the most uplifting way to start a new show but nor can we hide from the darkness of the current moment look persian culture is full of warmth togetherness poetry wisdom romance family love light and we should explore and celebrate that and we will here but ask any iranian when the worst days began and you'll get an answer of months or years or even decades back no one will say it's been rosy even for those of us who didn't grow up in iran the heartache of the people is visceral most recently, there have been crippling sanctions, a barbaric crackdown on protesters that left thousands dead, the horrific shooting down of a plane that killed many of our friends in the diaspora, and now, of course, a pandemic that found early footing in Iran and has disproportionately affected those of Iranian background. So a few of us got together to talk about building a global platform in English, the lingua franca, where we can explore identity and our common experience made for those in the diaspora, but accessible to non-Iranians too. This show is an attempt at that. We know it won't be perfect to begin with. There'll be a learning curve, the challenge of balancing opinions, voices, and non-partisanship, but it's worth a try in creating this space. The truth is the population of people of Iranian descent outside of Iran has grown dramatically by the millions in recent decades. And we've all been through a lot. There are stories to be told and experiences to be shared. We will do our best to do that as simply and as candidly as possible. So here we go. I'm Giango Meshi, and this is Rook, conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. Maybe one of the most shocking aspects of the coronavirus pandemic is the fact that it has reminded us of what we, as humans, often collectively try to forget, 
the unpredictable and inescapable nature of our mortality. Death disrupts life, as it was known, for individuals, families, communities, emotionally paralyzing, socially disruptive, and functionally disabling, often for a long period of time. But different cultures may show differing ways of response. So how do we process grieving and mourning in the Iranian diaspora at a time when there is so much of it to contend with? And what can we learn about ourselves and the world at a time when we are surrounded by so much sadness and loss? This is the first edition of Rook, and today also marks exactly 100 days since a tragic and horrific and infuriating event for the Iranian community around the world. We want to dedicate this episode to the families and loved ones of those who lost their lives on Flight 752 on that plane that was shot down from the sky in Iran. Hamid Esmailiun was a father and a husband until the early hours of Wednesday, January 8th, 2020, when Ukrainian Flight 752, carrying his nine-year-old daughter Rira and his wife, Paddy Saw, was shot down by Iranian anti-aircraft missiles. All 176 passengers and nine crew members lost their lives. He's a dentist by profession, but now he's also well known for his heart-wrenching poems and remembrances to his late wife and daughter, and his tireless attempts to find justice that have galvanized so many in the Iranian diaspora. Hamed Esmailiun joins me right now from Richmond Hill, Canada. Hello, Hamed. Hi, John. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for agreeing to come on our show I, in such unimaginably uh, difficult times for you. You're very welcome. I, I, I guess let's start with today. Hamid, where, where is your heart and mind today? Let me start uh, from where I sit now. I'm in Rira's room, just sitting in front of her mirror, and all of her, un, uh, all of her packed French magazines in front of me. So, uh, you know, uh, every day is different, John. So uh, it depends on the uh, news that we get in the morning. Uh, every morning when I open my eyes, I take my phone and I uh, search PS752. I want to find the news, if there's any news. I search it in Farsi and English, both of them. And my day goes on based on the news I got in the morning. Mm. So, for example, this morning there was a news about like Ukraine and Iran again, and that that can destroy the whole day. I mean, like that. To, I I can only imagine that there's people who've told you, don't look at the news. Stay, you know, take take breaks from it. Do you do that? Uh, <laughs> oh, I can't. Yeah. You know, uh, I was a news hunter, not after this. I was like that for, I'm sorry, for like 20, more than 25 years from the time that uh, I I went to university. I was so sensitive from anything happening in Iran. And uh, I never quit that. Never, ever. It's like newspapers every day. And then after that, websites and but after this uh, 8th of January, so uh, for for the first few days, actually, I was so uh, confused. 
and devastated that they couldn't check anything. Actually, people could, you know, people kind of came to me and said, "Okay, this happened or that." Yeah. But, yeah, but now, no, no, this is not something that they can do. I have to check the news every morning. Hamid, it, it's been a very uh, difficult uh, three months uh, for uh, Iranians, for the world. How and and you're going through this this grieving process. How? How has your process of mourning evolved over that time, especially now that you're more isolated because of a pandemic? Yeah, I think it was uh, like eight weeks after this that I started to go back to work to my office, our office in Aurora. It was E and E dentistry, but there's just one E right now. And, uh, but it was, you know, this is something that Peso beat from the scratch. And I just went back to see her patient because I knew that it's so important for her to take care of them. And actually the way she set her flight time and her journey to Iran was like that, to come back as soon as possible to see her patient. She was, she was really into her work. And uh, I said, okay, go back just finish the stuff that she started. So I went back. Uh, I, I don't know if it was good or not going back to work, but when I sit on her chair, I just, I'm a different person. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm her. I'm just Paisa. And I'm just looking at the patient the way that she used to look. And, uh, uh, so I went back to work for a few weeks, then this pandemic happened and they closed all the dental offices. So uh, another difficult time after a difficult time. And uh, I don't know how, how I cope with this, but uh, I have no other option. I have to stay home. I make myself busy with talking to the families and working for an association and talking to the media, things like that. But every morning when I get up, uh, I say to myself, oh, another day. And when it's like 12 o'clock at night, I say to myself, okay, you succeeded. You were able to finish another day. This is what's going on right now. You literally are living day to day. Exactly. You, your mother is with you, yes, in your in that house. Yes, yes, she is. And Paris's mom. And Paris's mom. Yeah. Yeah. And and how do you? And that's confusing too, because I guess at the same time you have to be worried about them and uh, and the fact that there's this pandemic going on. Yes. Uh, yes. I. I. That's the main reason that I don't get out of the house because I don't care about myself actually, and I want to stay safe. But I say, okay, if uh, I, I get the coronavirus, what about my mom? What about Paris's mom? So uh, uh, they have to stay safe, and you know, uh, I I see them every day grieving, and uh, this is very hard. This is very hard, but. In last two months, I think we just learned how, you know, from the time the pandemic started, we just learned how to do it. Like my mom, the way she does it, 
she comes to Brewer's room, the same same place I'm here now. So I can hear her crying here. But uh, when I'm sleeping at night, I can hear Paisu's mom is crying down the stairs. So uh, it's, depression is part of the grieving process. But this uh, uh, pandemic, I think, affected like strongly on this. When you say something like "I, I don't care about myself," do you do you mean that? Uh, honestly, yes. You know, what should I say, John? Uh, I was not on that plane, but it seems that I was. So. Uh, I went on, the, it was on day 48 that finally I found the guy who was sitting next to them. And I wrote a, like a short letter to him that I wish I was in your place, Milad. His name was Milad. He was a PhD student here. I wish I was on that seat, man. And uh, that was, you know, uh, all the trips, all the journeys that we had, we had a very tight unit, this family, and we went everywhere together. We went to London, New York, Boston, Cuba, Disneyland, like uh, east of Canada, all together. We never traveled alone. That was the only time. And I didn't go because I was vocal about anything happening in Iran especially on November, what happened to to people in Iran. I, and even before that, like, like writing about uh, uh, workers, teachers. And then when Teresa wanted to book this flight, I said, and she said, are you coming? That was her sister engagement party. And I like her. It's like, she's like my little sister. I never, I, I don't have a sister. So, I really love to be there, but I said, if I come, like other times that they question me, it might be a problem. I don't want to ruin your happiness. So I didn't go. And I'm, I can't forgive myself for that. You know, you talking about Rira and, and Parisa, the way you've done it in the last few months, it, it, it has... I feel that's part of the reason the world has has grieved alongside of you, and the the broader Canadian community has, and especially the Iranian community uh, has. How do you see the Iranian community, say in Canada, coming together in times of grief and loss? What was and if I can ask you to be rook, you know, was there any act or any reaction that has inflamed your sorrow, or was there any act that relieved your pain, even momentarily? Most of the comments I get from the Iranian-Canadian community is relieving, actually. Uh, I've had few few comments, but I, I, can, I can forgive and pass. And uh, they're not in my shoes, so they don't, you know, those people that they give me, like, uh, hateful messages or something like that. I mean, if they're in Canada, they're not in my shoes. And I never pray for them to be in my shoes. And, uh, but, uh, the support that I got from them was amazing. I never, I, I was never in the, like the center of the attention. And I hate that. I was always, I was in the margin of this community. 
But this brought me to the center. And uh, so less of attention. I know myself. I know my personality. So uh, uh, I try to keep myself safe in this storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I have a big goal to achieve, I think. I don't know. This this emotions are coming to me every day by any news finally can destroy any single of us. I mean, any single family members. But uh, I think after me, another new brother or sister that I have found, we take this flag up and continue carry on. You know, you have in some ways become the face of dealing with tragic loss in the Iranian community. People do want to hear from you and find, they find some kind of catharsis in, in sharing your words. Uh, you, you talked about that not being a role you wanted, but I suppose you feel you have to accept at this point. Yeah, it's very hard to accept that actually from, from the beginning. When I went to Iran, people came to me, relatives, friends, and they said to me that you have a new role. Uh, I, I, it was unbelievable because I was like, oh, I'm like a normal person. I'm an ordinary person. I'm, I was getting up in the morning, making breakfast for Riva every morning, take her to school, say goodbye to Presa, come back in the afternoon, like uh, talking about the day, and as you say, from 8th of January, everything is completely different. So to, for accepting this new role, I had to challenge myself. I never, I had like a uh, Instagram page, didn't use it for like more than three years because I didn't want to post pictures of Rira. She, didn't, she never allowed me actually. She was like, what are you doing that? Where where do you send it? Hmm. Oh, to your grandma. Why? Do you give me permission? If you just send it to grandma, yes. Hmm. So I never posted a picture of her. If you look at my page before this date, I never did that. Even Parisa. This uh, relationship that we had together was something in between us. We never wanted to share that with the uh, with the word. And there was no reason. So we had a good relationship and we were in love, all three of us. But after this, I put everything in front of me, her videos, her photos, Paris's words. And I said, I have to share that with the word. This is not in my hands. I have to do it because if I don't do that, Everybody will forget this story, and I don't want this story to be forgotten for justice. Well, on that note, you have relentlessly expressed your frustration at the Iranian authorities for leaving your questions unanswered. Hamid, what, what kind of closure are you after? Do you, do you think any closure will be attainable for you? I have to be realistic, you know. Nobody will find the justice in this world. This is not something I say after 8th of January. This was even before that. 
the justice, the real justice is that Pakistan will really come back to me. Never happens. But those people who are in charge of this crime, this unbelievable crime, they have to come to justice. I want to, you know, this is the way that we are acting against them. It's a very civilized action, I think, compared to what they do to their own people and to the other countries' people. This is very civilized for them. We are all Iranians. We all know that. But we don't want to wash blood with blood. And uh, we want to bring them to a court, see them in the court, and ask them the questions. Why you shot to 26 kids and teenagers three minutes after taking off? Why? And, you know, if they answer the question, uh, even if I see them in the, in the court, or even before that, if I find that this action was intentional, that's a new day for me and new day for all the Iranians, I think. You're not alone in seeking justice. What kind of conversations do you have with, um, with other families who lost their loved ones in this tragedy? Um, I usually talk to five, six families a day all over the, wor- over the world. You know, it can be from Canada, from Iran, from Sudan, from UK. And, uh, all of them are in the same page. All of them are angry. All of them are furious. All of them, you know, I can feel the rage and uh, uh, impatience in them that uh, we need to get to that point. We need to see them pay for all these horrible nights and days that we are passing, we are going through. So I can tell you most of them so far, I haven't seen anybody in this family that doesn't want justice or just looking for compensation. That's that's something that Iranian government, like Islamic Republic of Iran, is making up. Mm. That these families are looking for compensation. It's not true. It's not true. You know, the only times we we've seen you smile in your media interviews is when you're talking about Rira. Hmm. T- tell us about. Tell us how her and her memories bring light to your heart in the midst of all this darkness. She was the best kid any parent can like ask for. And she knew that. I always told her, Rira, you're the best. You're the best. So that, she was the only child. We never had a like we never planned to have another child because she was the best. And uh, same thing for Parisa. I I think she was the best friend I had for 20 years, married for 19 years and four days. And uh, both of them, they knew how much I loved them. Uh, But our way of living was a little different, me and Parisa, we really uh, for example, I remember uh, she was in grade two, and you know her her motto was "I'm a happy do- happy girl." Hmm. So, and when I make her upset, she was like, "I'm a happy I'm a happy girl, Dad. Why are you ruining my day?" So, 
I remember uh, she has she had math classes, and she was not very good in math. You know, this is a this is a common problem in Canada that usually kids they don't take it serious to be good in math. Mm. And I said, Prira, why why you're not trying enough to be good? And she's like, Dad, every everybody knows that the boys are better than girls in math. I reacted to that. I said. Who said that? She said, everybody at the school says that, that boys are better. So then I had to give her an example of uh, Maryam Mirza Khani, the mathematician, the Iranian girl who was, who was amazing. Unfortunately, she passed away at the age of 40. Yes. So I gave her this example. I said, look at her. She's, she's amazing. She's the best one in math in, in, in the world. So I... My way of <laughs> like treating her was just giving her speeches, hmm. but Parisa's way was different. So I just noticed Parisa starting buying math books and working with her almost every day for two years. And uh, when it was a memorial and one of her classmates came to pay tribute to her, mm-hmm. he said, Rira, you were cute, you were funny, and you were good at math. So I was like, <laughs> why you're not here to, to hear that? That this long journey of efforts and like working together for hours a day pays off, but they're not here. So. I remember that moment. I remember that moment and there were, there've been so many powerful moments and you've dedicated yourself to keeping the memories of your loved ones alive publicly, publicly. Tell me how that brings, tell me how that brings you or does that bring you solace? It's very difficult for me publicly, but I think somebody needs to have the courage of that, to be brave enough to talk about uh, this relationship she had, this bond I, I, he had, this bond I had with, with these two girls. Yeah, I call them girls, actually. And uh, it's not easy. It's not easy to live in a room that... Uh, it's covered by glasses and everybody can see you. But uh, somebody can throw a stone to this glass wall. But uh, I'm sitting here. I'm still talking. Yes, I don't know. I, there, are, there are stories that I never say. There are stories I never talk about between Rira and me and Parisa. But uh, I try to share as more as I can. You know, January 8th wasn't very long ago. It's, it's, it, you can, it's, it's just there. We were, we remember it. We were all there. And yet it seems like the, the world has changed. It, it just in that interim period, if, if you could, if you could look Parisa in the eyes and hold her hands right now, what would you want to tell her? I want to tell her after they left 
the happiness happiness has gone to the music, theaters, cinemas, soccer stadiums, concerts, all of them canceled. After they left, everybody lives in fear and agony. They're worried about losing, but I've experienced that before. I'm not in the fear of losing. So uh, it's a different word. I have to tell her that it's a different word that you can't even imagine. And if you were here, I'm sure you were trying hard to keep Rira safe, yourself safe, safe, me safe. And you were, I'm sure that you were going to your office and trying to donate all those masks and gloves that you have and checking the news every day for a new life for the world. Because I'm sure someone like Pesa, like Rira, they never wanted work be in this situation. I don't talk about myself. Um, I think those two people, they were like that. They were lovers of life, full of life. Mm -hmm. And this ended tragically. And that's why those people who did that, they have to pay for it. And before I let you go, what do you think, let me turn it around, what do you think Parisa would have wanted you to do these days? Same thing that I do. I mean... Uh, looking for justice because we had this conversation before like when something happening in Iran like somebody loses her child his child or something like that Parisa was like why they don't pursue why they don't look and go after those people and uh, I said to her every time that Parisa if I go to Iran and they arrest me or they question me speak out about it Go to the media and talk about it. Never, never leave it in silence. So I do the same thing. I think they, he, she asked, probably she, uh, she wants me to be healthy or safer. I don't know. But uh, to, to just do this, to just finish this job. I think that's her wish too. Hamid, you know, we all lost a piece of our heart with Parisa and Rira and, and all the other innocent lives uh, who died in Flight 752. I, thank you for opening your heart to us. Thank you for doing this interview. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much, Jan. Bye-bye. Bye.
beautiful piece of music has not been heard anywhere yet before. This is the voice of Ghazal Shakeri, who also wrote the lyrics, with the melody based on a Bakhtiari lullaby. The music is performed and produced by our Rook team member Shia, who you may also know from the super band Dang Show. This is full time for Rook. Thank you to the amazing team who are working on this. If you want to be involved and help us out, please do. You can reach us at info at rookmedia.com. We're going to try and do a new episode two or three times a week. Until then, I'm Gian Gomeshi. To be continued. No, no, no.